0: Welcome to episode number five of the EAIE podcast series. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, coming to you from the European Association for International Education, where I work as Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this conversation, we're dipping a toe into the world of numbers and data in European higher education, and doing so by way of a conversation with a very well-informed colleague on these matters, David Crozier. David in fact leads the work on higher education that's undertaken by Eurydice the European Union's education information network. We're all extremely interested in data these days and for good reason. Evidence-based decision making truly is the gold standard for practitioners and policymakers alike since we're all working to understand what's happening in the world around us and how our work is or could drive the kinds of outcomes and impact we aspire to. David's role at Eurydice and his long association with projects focused on Bologna process developments, in particular give him a very rich and data grounded vantage point from which to consider a wide range of European higher education trends, issues, shortcomings and success stories. It's great to have you with us, David. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Well, I'm really happy to, to have been invited. So thanks for the invitation
0: our pleasure so for listeners who might not be deeply familiar with eurydice i wonder if you could give us a quick overview of its remit and what you specifically do there
1: okay well eurydice is uh, really its function it's a network of uh, uh, which operates across the the erasmus plus countries essentially uh, and it's been going for a long time it's since uh, it's actually our 40th anniversary this year the remit is to collect information and uh, provide comparative analysis of education systems across Europe. So we cover everything from early childhood education up to adult education. Uh, on our website there's, uh, there's like a, an education Wikipedia that can, where you can find all kinds of structured information about different aspects of education systems it's all to serve European policy development really just the the purpose so and but also national policy development so other countries can see what's happening in certain areas uh themselves when in in what their neighbors and partners are doing so they they can get inspired by that and we also centrally what we we have a unit which uh collects specific information and puts it together and does comparative analysis also using Eurostat data, uh, so that we can we can kind of produce uh, thematic reports that look at particular issues of interest for policy making discussions. So that's the that's the remit. And uh, me specifically, I work on the higher education aspects. So uh, uh, and there we go. Actually, beyond the Erasmus Plus countries, because we're of course the European higher education area now covers 48 countries and we work in that context and produce uh, each time as a ministerial conference we produce a report for that conference looking at the the state of play of the European higher education area on all the commitments that are made in that we also produce other uh, specific reports on higher education related to issues that uh, are of interest in the policy making framework, so so that's that's what we do.
0: Fantastic, okay, and I understand that there is a 2020 edition of the Bologna Process Implementation yes. Report coming out. Um, right. It doesn't come out every year, um, but there this no. is a year for it. Um, 2020 being such an important year in many ways. I was wondering as we look forward to that release if you might be able to talk about any issues or impressions from that work that you think are, are rather important or notable.
1: Yeah, uh, you're right, it doesn't come out every year. It comes out when there's a ministerial conference, and that's uh, every two or three years. So the idea is that ministers agree on an agenda for a kind of period, and then uh, uh, and what we do is kind of look at what progress takes place during that period on the issues they, they agree. Uh, but the particular report for 2020 is slightly different to that because it's not just simply uh, providing a snapshot of uh, where we stand in 2020. It has that purpose as well, uh, but it's also more a kind of reflection on the two decades of the Bologna process and uh, and what's evolved and what's been achieved and what hasn't been achieved yet. Uh, so it's, it's more looking long term because we had a the last report actually was in 2018, so the, the snapshot picture is not going to change dramatically in that short time frame between 2018 and 2020. So we decided to take the opportunity to, to kind of look uh, a bit more reflectively over the, uh, what the process has done. So, um, yeah, what, what I would pick out to say is, uh, first of all, uh, I think it's been... Uh, Rather an underestimated process in terms of its achievements. So, uh, uh, I, I mean, I know that a lot of people feel like, uh, "Oh well, the Bologna process that, that's come and gone." You know, the the important things were done in the first ten years, um, and to some extent, that's partly true. The, the 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 ten years uh, from 20, 2000 up to 2010 were a period of Real dynamism in terms of system reforms, you know, agreements on changing degree structures, uh, agreements on putting in place quality assurance systems to to support uh, the the kind of uh, trust across uh, between countries. All of this happened a lot in the first decade, it's true. Um, but what people tend to forget is that a lot of countries joined the process along the way. so uh, so so for for them, uh, they still had to go through these kind of reform processes, and that took time. And also what happens is that uh, you you have issues of interconnection which become apparent after reforms are undertaken. So the, so the way in which reforms are done, uh, maybe more deeply and thoroughly in some countries than others, leads to kind of issues of how systems then relate to each other and so the, the kind of implementation challenges continue after legislative reform takes place so it's uh uh so there's a lot of things that happen what the uh, what i would also say is that the context of the country's uh, development is also very important and sometimes overlooked when you just talk about the policies as such but, uh, but it's really important to recognise that uh, the expansion in, in higher education that's taken place over the last 20 years. So uh, in terms of numbers across the 48 countries, we're now at 38 million students, so it's, it's a Uh OK, a lot of those are concentrated in a few countries. There are actually five countries which have 60% of, that, uh, of, of the total number of students. So, uh, so it's very uneven distribution. Uh, The countries are also very different in terms of their uh, cultural and social development. So, you know, we have uh, very, very diverse countries, very small states, very large states, uh, different types of cultural and historical backgrounds, all relating together. So, uh, uh, But that 38 million figure for students, that's increased by about 18 million. Uh, in, in the 20-year period. So it's it's a massive change. And it's not just numbers. It's also that, for example, it, it, it's not just the numbers of, of students that have changed, but the, the purposes of higher education are continually evolving. So uh, so higher education is required to do more and more things as society develops. So we, we're, we're seeing that context changing uh, and these reforms taking place within a changing context. So it's a very complex process. Uh, And I think it's amazing that so much has been done in terms of the countries have all agreed on having harmonized to a certain extent degree structures. So the systems have become more understandable and interoperable, if you like, between, between them. Uh, there's, a, there's a discussion and a dialogue, and agreement on setting common objectives amongst 48 countries. That itself is amazing. You know, so uh, it's kind of overlooked and taken for granted in this world. But it's, uh, but it's actually incredible. There isn't another example in other sectors where you see similar type of process taking place. So um, also just to, another thing to mention about that is... Uh, you know, this includes countries which, in other ways, have extreme difficulties talking to each other. So you know you're, you're talking about uh, uh, you know Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, all parts of the same process, sitting around the table talking about higher education, despite uh, other difficulties that uh, they may have, or the Western Balkan countries uh, in the past, but still were able to, to to come together in Bologna. Uh, so, so this aspect of the process is also neglected, I think, uh, in, in people's appreciation. So lots of things have happened. So quality assurance, degree structures, things have been moving in terms of internationalization too. Uh, but we can talk maybe more specifically about that. But uh, it's, it's, it's a complex picture. Um, where I would say there's one big area of uh, lack of success is in the social dimension. So, uh, and that we report quite clearly that uh, the issues, uh, you know, the, the, the Bologna process is, has voiced the kind of aspirations of having inclusive higher education systems. But if you look at the data, that hasn't been achieved. So, uh, so we still have, um, you know, the, the reality that the state of your parental parents' education is a big determining factor for whether you'll have access to higher education and success in higher education, that migrants are much less likely to be able to access and succeed than native-born students. Um, These kind of realities, the, the, the Bologna process has not really affected, and that's an agenda which still needs to be thought differently, I think, for the future.
0: So really a lot to digest as we look back over those two decades, Um, but, you know, really encouraging to see the, um, as you say, the remarkable progress in dialogue and and implementation around certain aspects of this work, Um, but I think so important to highlight the areas in which underwhelming performance is, is more notable. Mm. And hopefully uh, that will, you know, feed into as you say the policy dialogue that can push forward in these areas where there still is considerable work that needs to be done. So I think we'll all be really looking forward to being able to get that report in our hands and think through some of those issues as well. Um, I I think one of the things that always interests me about policy is the human side of things as well, the the personal side actually that goes into the experiences of developing and implementing. policy and, and regulations. You've been a really close and careful observer of the Bologna process for quite a number of years now, not only at Eurydice, but I believe previously at the European University Association. And I was mm-hmm. just curious to ask you what it's been like for you personally to live alongside this major modernization and alignment process for so long.
1: Yeah, it is for so long. I mean, I've become a kind of dinosaur, I suppose, but uh, the, the tracking this, but uh, uh, but at the same time, it's, uh, I think, you know, I've been really lucky, you know, very, very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to uh, to, to be able to kind of follow things over time. Uh, you know, I think in, uh, and, and what I think is really such an important uh, and uh, unprecedented process. And so it's, it's uh, so I've been, I think I'm really privileged to have had the opportunity to be paid to do it. So, uh uh you know there and for so long so um and but for me i i mean you you said it's per, about person personality and things it's uh and for me a lot of it is also about this opportunity to connect to so many people uh across so many countries so uh so that's what i've really appreciated in uh in my work that uh uh you know that i'm having to ask people you know so, what exactly happened in your country here to you know the, the, to get the inside picture to to kind of understand the reality of different countries and to you know I've just developed a, a lot of friendships with people across many many countries and uh, uh, doing all kinds of different work because uh, people do so many different things in in this higher education area. So, uh, so I've I've been really fortunate to to do it and um, uh, yeah I, I feel. You know, things have been, of course, sometimes it's frustrations. I'm not saying, uh, that it's always plain sailing, but, uh, uh, so sometimes it, it does feel like, you know, come on, are we talking about this still, you know, and, uh, and you, you think, isn't it, can't we get beyond that issue? Or, but, uh, so you, you do have those moments and you feel like you're reporting things that you've said before in the past and still haven't been properly tackled, but, uh, but overall, I mean, I I just think I've been very lucky
0: now. How nice. And, uh, you know, I really relate to that idea of, of having relationships being such a sustaining force in the work that yes. we do. It's really nice to hear that. That's been your experience as well. So Eurydice does a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, beyond the Bologna process um, reporting, which we're all super interested in. I, I wonder if there's some other projects that you might be able to touch on that you've been working on, uh, that you are working on currently or have completed in 2020 that might be of interest to our EIE community.
1: Yeah, I, actually, I, I think I should have said a little bit more about uh, uh, the kind of mobility issues as well uh, the, in the Bologna process. So, uh, uh, But that's something that we, we also do is uh, is a mobility scoreboard. So it's a, like a, 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 this is kind of uh, look at uh, the environmental conditions to support mobility and whether they're, uh, they're in place. And you know, so we have a number of indicators that we update regularly there. Uh, and it's uh, it's, a, it's an interesting report to, to to track over time as well. Um, but what I wanted to say on Bologna was that uh, is, is that if you look at statistics about student mobility. Uh, you could be a little bit disappointed about uh, the the lack of progress that apparently seems to have been made. So uh, in 2009, there was a target set that we should have 20% of graduates across the EHEA as a whole uh, having had a mobility experience. And what we report this time in the report is that uh, uh, we're far from reaching that uh, 20% target when you look at graduates from all higher education programs so uh, short cycle but bachelor's uh, masters and doctoral programs all taken together uh, we we don't get even we're, we're only around ten percent so we're below ten percent in fact uh, that seems like well this this process has not been a success then and uh, and certainly this exercise of target setting hasn't been a success however uh I don't think it's quite that straightforward because, um, first of all, when this 20% target was set, nobody actually knew what the percentage of uh, mobility was because we didn't have any data on uh, credit mobility. So people, apart from numbers in programs like Erasmus, we couldn't say how many people were doing part of their studies abroad. Uh, We only had data on degree mobility, and that was also not completely reliable either, it, uh, but for different reasons. So the, the, the kind of target was set a little bit blindly. Uh, also, I think it was set without thinking about this issue that I mentioned at the beginning of uh, the expansion of student numbers. But when you have so many more students coming into the system, if you want to see a percentage change in terms of uh, mobility, it means that absolute numbers have to increase quite dramatically. So, uh, And I don't think that was taken into account. Uh, but the other thing is that mobility happens much more in certain cycles of uh, higher education than in others. We can see in the data is if you looked only at, uh, only at the PhD and the master level, you would find that there is very close to, we, we get close to the 20% target when you look at those levels. But when you then take account of the bachelor and, uh, and the uh, short cycle programs. Um, and bachelor programs, by the way, account for 56% now of, uh, of all the student enrollments. So, uh, uh, so when you think that in the early years of reforms, the, the, the level of skepticism around introducing the bachelors, uh, that now we've, uh, we've, we've got to the point where 56% of students are enrolled in those programs. Uh, and I think that's also a, a level of how how much progress has been made yeah, as an indicator of it so uh as i say the the issue of, um, uh, of of mobility is more complex than the first overview figure shows so uh so yeah that that that's uh an area that i think for will obviously for this community be of interest uh and the other the other area of work that i think is Really interesting in Eurydice is that we've just produced a report on equity in school education, which is uh, uh, I think it's really insightful. I think it's I mean I wasn't involved in doing the work, but I think it's uh, an excellent report that's really got a lot of good outcomes and and clear directions for policy that needs to change at school level, and I think that's also the basis for uh, reforms that need to take place to address social dimension challenges in higher education. In fact, what what I think is that we can't really do it at higher education level if things are not changed earlier. So it's it's important to take a more wide, holistic view of these challenges and look at education systems more globally. So that's, I think, how Eurydice work in different types of sectors can join up and actually be useful for policy thinking.
0: Absolutely. Extremely exciting. And I think, you know, many of my colleagues would second that uh, notion that understanding the um, experiences across the continuum of levels of education is really vital. These are not disconnected and one feeds into the next. And for us to get a proper handle on these very complex issues, we have to take all of that into account. So very interesting for us to think about. Um, We are actually having this conversation. You've been talking a lot about data um, on what happens to be World Statistics Day. Which I didn't know about until very recently. Um, According to the UN, um, World Statistics Day is something that we are meant to celebrate every five years, and this is the third iteration uh, of this celebration. Um, The theme for this year in 2020 is connecting the world with data we can trust. And Mm -hmm. the UN um, is currently talking about this year's World Statistics theme um, in terms of, of a reflection on the importance of trust authoritative data, innovation, and the public good in national statistical systems. Uh, A lot of big ideas in there, but I was wondering, you know, as someone who's been working deeply and closely with data on higher education in Europe, what do those words and notions mean to you? How do you relate to data? And what do you think about this idea of trust, innovation, and the public good in this discussion?
1: First of all, I mean it's great that the UN actually uh, have this celebration. I mean I think it's nice to give attention to to the importance of uh, trustworthy information and data and statistics. Um, yeah, personally I have to say what I think it's important. I, I mean personally I just trust statistics. So uh, because I know that the people working behind them are really doing a very uh, a very professional job. There's a lot of effort put into Ensuring that uh, that statistical data from public bodies like uh, UN or Eurostat in Europe, you know, the, or OECD, the, the, these statistics are uh, are really professionally brought together. There's a lot of attention to make sure that people understand the definitions, what should be reported, uh, etc. So I I have no difficulty saying that I'm uh, that I will trust statistics, but uh, what i have more difficulty with is that I, uh I, it's, it's very clear that we shouldn't trust the way people interpret those statistics necessarily so uh, uh so you have to be careful ab- about that uh and you see that people are very selective about what bits of statistical information they may pick to support their positions and uh uh and you know while you know we we like the notion uh, in European policy making we like to talk about uh, evidence based policy but uh, uh, but the truth is that often uh, you you kind of think of the uh, policymakers think of their policies and then look for evidence to support it rather than uh, looking at what the evidence is showing them about where, where the policies should be changing so uh, so I, I, as i say i think it's the use of statistics which is of concern not so much the the, the statistics themselves, which usually are, uh, as I say, are very professionally put together, and what's important for me as well is to remember that behind the statistics are people usually. So it's it's not in. Although I say I trust the statistics, I don't think the statistics on their own are enough to understand reality properly. You know, you have to remember what uh, what's behind that and what it's showing, uh, and. You know, and also to look for other, uh, more qualitative ways of combining information with statistical data. So I think it's uh, that makes uh, kind of uh, research more more kind of complete and interesting. So, uh, so but yeah, um, uh, and I uh, think you know this time that we're living through with the pandemic also shows. Uh, I mean, I think there's been a lot of really good uh, use of uh, statistics, but you've also seen how complex it is to uh, when you're going across countries, you know, even counting the number of people who've died is difficult, you know, because do you, you know, you have to at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't have the same notions of within what period of time you're counting the deaths. Uh, these kind of things, it's, um, uh, you think it must be very easy just to count the number of people who've died from a particular illness or whatever and just kind of compare. But you, we're all seeing now that it's not quite so easy, you know, and that there has to be some thought and agreement put to uh, to make sure that data is collected and reported in a comparable way. But I think, as I say, in general, the people that are doing this are doing it very professionally. The the, the people who are picking it up and using it, no, that's more that's more of uh, an issue to explore.
0: For sure, I think those are very wise words of caution about our critical consumption of data right. and statistics. Okay. Um, and I really like, you know, the points that you make around this idea of the the bigger picture. You know, the the qualitative components that go into the realities around us that also need to be taken into account. Yeah, David, thank you so much for taking some time to give us insight into the work that you're doing at Eurydice and the um, the Bologna Process, among many other interesting aspects of your work.
1: Well, thank you, Laura. It's been a
0: pleasure. Again, that was David Crozier of Eurydice, the Education Information Network for the European Union. The EAIE is, of course, highly interested in using data to help us all gain insight into trends and issues that matter to our community. Currently, we have an open survey focused on exchange mobility trends across the European higher education area for this current academic year. That survey is collecting data through November 6, 2020. We'd be delighted if your institution could complete the survey or if you would actively encourage others to do so. The greater the response rate, the clearer the picture we'll have of these dynamics, which are so important to all of us. Please check out the episode notes for this episode on the EAIE website for a link to the survey. You can find us at EAIE.org slash blog. Our next podcast will be published on Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. Stay tuned for more information on what's in store next in our series. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the EAIE podcast and will continue coming back for more. You can listen and subscribe to the series via any of your preferred podcast platforms. We also very much appreciate it when you like and share the EAIE podcast on social media. So please share the love. And of course, we're always interested in hearing directly from you. Please send feedback, suggestions, and ideas for guests or topics to info at EAIE.org. Thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to sharing another episode of the EAA podcast very soon.